Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada live stream for Wednesday, November 15th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman along with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley and John Elmer and our executive director Ali Abunima. Thank you all for tuning in. We have another uh, important show for you today, so please stay tuned. After Ali's remarks, we'll be joined by Sadaf Dust of the Center for Constitutional Rights to talk about a landmark lawsuit filed on behalf of Palestinians who are suing U.S. President Joe Biden and his secretaries of state and defense to stop them from further aiding and abetting Israel's genocide in Gaza. And we'll have analysis from Abdel Jawad Omar in the Occupied West Bank. And John, of course, will bring us his military analysis as usual later on in the show. But first, Ali, let's start with your opening remarks. Thank you, Nora. Since early this morning in Gaza, Israeli invasion forces have been raiding and ransacking Al-Shifa Hospital, uh, Gaza's largest medical center. The occupation army is in the dialysis building without bothering to bring fuel to help patients, the hospital's director, Mohammed Abu Salmiya, told Al Jazeera Arabic. We cannot reach the pharmacy to treat patients as the occupation shoots everyone who moves, he said. Abu Salmiya described being unable to communicate with doctors throughout the hospital, and he said he was unaware of the state of the dozens of premature babies being treated at the facility. He said no one from the Israeli army has contacted him since the hospital was stormed and water, electricity and oxygen are completely cut off. The patient's wounds began to rot significantly after all services in the hospital stopped, he said. The smell of death wafts everywhere. Even before the Israeli invasion of Al-Shifa hospital, the situation there was dire Earlier in the day, before troops invaded, staff had buried dozens of bodies in a makeshift mass grave in the hospital's yard. Omar Zakut, the emergency coordinator for Al-Shifa Hospital, told Al Jazeera Arabic by phone that the situation was getting more desperate every hour and more people were dying. He said the Israeli forces storming the hospital had detained many of the displaced people sheltering there blindfolded them and stripped them of their clothes and then took them to unknown destinations. The Israelis blew up most of the hospital gates and shrapnel hit many people, Zakut said. And he added that no one had seen the Israelis delivering any supplies as they had claimed they would do in their social media propaganda. An important point that Zakut made and that others present on the scene have emphasized in recent hours, there have been absolutely no exchanges of fire and that's because there are no Palestinian resistance fighters at the hospital. The only violence has come from the constant shelling and shooting by the invading Israeli forces. Thousands of people, the sick, injured, medical staff and displaced people are being attacked, terrorized, and in many cases killed. And for what? It's clear that Israel's systematic attack on the healthcare system in Gaza, which has now forced most of the hospitals and dozens of health facilities to shut down, was part of its genocidal campaign to destroy the Palestinian people in Gaza and to make the territory uninhabitable. That's a goal Israeli leaders have publicly 
and clearly declared. But Israel does have a long-standing obsession with Al-Shifa Hospital in particular that goes back many years. Look at this article in the New York Times from 2009, for instance. It says, quote, The Israeli intelligence chief Yuval Diskin, in a report to the Israeli cabinet, said that the Gaza-based leadership of Hamas was in underground housing beneath the number two building of Shifa Hospital, the largest in Gaza. That allegation cannot be confirmed, end quote. The Times also stated, and I quote, weapons are hidden in mosques, schoolyards, and civilian houses, and the leadership's war room is a bunker beneath Gaza's largest hospital, Israeli intelligence officials say, end quote. The Israelis have never presented a shred of evidence that Hamas has a bunker under Shifa Hospital. So why do they keep insisting on this? Take a look at this article from the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, also from 2009, 14 years ago. It states, quote, senior Hamas officials in Gaza are hiding out in a bunker built by Israel, intelligence officials suspect. Many are believed to be in the basements of the Shifa hospital complex in Gaza City, which was refurbished during Israel's occupation of the Gaza Strip, end quote. So did you hear that? A bunker built by Israel, according to Haaretz. And look at this article from the pro-Israel publication Tablet from July 29, 2014, during Israel's massive bombardment of Gaza that summer. It states the following, and I quote, The Israelis are so sure about the location of the Hamas bunker, however, not because they are trying to score propaganda points or because it has been repeatedly mentioned in passing by Western reporters, but because they built it. Back in 1983, when Israel still ruled Gaza, they built a secure underground operating room and tunnel network between Shifa Hospital, which is among several reasons why Israeli security sources are so sure that there is a main Hamas command bunker in or around the large cement basement beneath the area of Building 2 of the hospital, which reporters are obviously prohibited from entering. End quote. Again, that was in 2014. In July 2014, Israel attacked Al-Shifa Hospital, prompting condemnation from the medical charity Doctors Without Borders, among others. And seven years later, on 16 May 2021, during another of its attacks on Gaza, Israel heavily bombed the area right around Al-Shifa Hospital, killing dozens of people in their homes, an atrocity known as the Al-Wihda Street Massacre. I'm quoting now from an article in The Independent, published on May 24, 2021. The air raids turned one of the busiest streets in Gaza and the main access point to the Strip's chief hospital, Al-Shifa, into a crater-marked moonscape. In place of apartment buildings are mangled heaps of concrete fringed with curls of iron rebar and scraps of belongings, end quote. The Independent continues. When questioned about the purpose of the attack, the Israeli army said Hamas, 
the militant group that runs Gaza, bears responsibility for intentionally locating its military infrastructure under civilian houses, thus exposing civilians to danger. It said a preliminary investigation into the attack found that Israeli aircraft struck underground military infrastructure that was located under the road. The underground military facilities collapsed, causing the foundations of the civilian houses above them to collapse as well, leading to unintended casualties, a statement read, end quote. And of course, that was the independent uh, quoting and summarizing what the Israeli military said at the time of its bombing uh, right outside Al-Shifa Hospital uh, in May of 2021. So let me summarize here. Israel wants you to believe the following propositions. First, that Hamas is stupid enough to use a bunker that Israel itself built and therefore presumably knows everything about. Second, that Hamas is stupid and careless enough to keep using this bunker, even though newspapers in Israel and the United States have for years published its precise alleged location. Third, Hamas is still using so-called underground military infrastructure under Al-Shifa that Israel claims to have destroyed more than two years ago. Yes, you are supposed to see, believe that the same Hamas that managed to take Israel completely by surprise on October 7th in a sophisticated military occupation that destroyed Israel's southern command is dumb enough to hide its most valuable assets in exactly the place Israel says it is. I know it all sounds ridiculous, and it is, but the Israelis are used to having an easy time. The Biden White House apparently believes them, or is at least cynical enough to play along with their lies, and American and other Western media follow suit. Recall that a few days ago, Israel committed another war crime when it raided the Rantisi Children's Hospital in Gaza City, armed with its usual lies about Hamas bunkers under the medical facility. Even though it found absolutely nothing to corroborate those claims, that did not stop Israel's military spokesman, Daniel Hagari, putting out a ridiculous video, and I'm not exaggerating here, claiming that a wall calendar, a baby bottle, a hospital gown, and a bag of diapers were proof of Hamas activity. Let's watch a little clip of it together. You're now entering into the room where we suspect the hostages were being held. I want you to look at this room. People are putting curtains with nothing above, just wall. No reason to put here a curtain unless you want to film hostages and deliver movies. And now we'll show you more evidence. In this room, there is a list. This list in Arabic, in Arabic, this list says we are in an operation. The operation against Israel started in the 7th of October. This is a guardian list where every terrorist writes his name and every terrorist has his own shift guarding the people that were here. Of course, uh that alleged list of Hamas terrorists didn't contain any names at all. It was simply a wall calendar. 
And I like how uh, Hamas uh, supposedly took the time to carefully hang those pleated curtains that uh, were so uh, neat and so uh, properly uh, organized that uh, my own mother would be proud of them. Uh, of course, we cannot uh, rule out, indeed, we can only expect that Israel is going to put out similar propaganda from Al Shifa and US media will re regurgitate it without any challenge. Indeed, Israel is already claiming, according to media reports I've looked at today, that it has, quote, undercovered we uncovered weapons in the basement of the hospital. That's already a major climb down from their fantasies about a Bond villain type lair for uh, Hamas, senior Hamas leaders hiding under the hospital. But as I said, Israel does not have to try very hard to get a pass from our so-called media. Let's be clear, though, this attack on Al-Shifa Hospital is as much the responsibility of the Joe Biden administration as it is of Israel. As Reuters has reported, the White House said on Tuesday its independent intelligence supported Israel's claim that Hamas was using Gaza's hospitals, including its biggest, to hide command posts and hostages, while a glimmer of progress emerged in hostage negotiations. John Kirby, the White House national security spokesperson, told reporters yesterday, quote, we have information that confirms that Hamas is using that particular hospital for a command and control node and probably to store weapons. That is a war crime, end quote. Undoubtedly, the so-called intelligence is more garbage fed to Biden by Benjamin Netanyahu, just like Netanyahu's outrageous false claims that Palestinian fighters beheaded dozens of Jewish babies on October the 7th. It's also just like the perennial Israeli so-called intelligence that Iran is always just a few months from having a nuclear bomb. It's a thin cover for crimes against humanity and genocide. A few hours ago, Barak Ravid, an Israeli journalist closely tied to the American and Israeli political and military establishments, made the following breaking news claim, and I quote, a senior Israeli official said that the purpose of the IDF operation at the Al-Shifa hospital wasn't to rescue hostages, but to locate and expose a Hamas tunnels hub that connects the hospital with other parts of the Gaza Strip, end quote. Another official reportedly said that Israel never even expected to find hostages, but that the raid was merely a symbol that there is no place that we will not reach. But what about those hostages? What about that command and control node that White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby said were there? The lies just keep coming. Earlier this week, several Palestinian human rights organizations and Palestinian and Palestinian American individuals filed a lawsuit in US federal court against President Biden Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to force them to try to stop the genocide. One of the plaintiffs is our dear friend and contributor to the Electronic Intifada, Ahmed Abur Tema, 
whose 13-year-old son Abdullah was killed along with other members of Ahmed's family in an Israeli bombing attack on their house on the 24th of October. Ahmed, by the way, has a new article just published by the Electronic Intifada today, and I hope you will all read and share it. In a few minutes, we will be speaking to uh, Sadaf Dost from the Center for Constitutional Rights, whose lawyers are closely involved in this lawsuit, and she'll be telling us more about it. The Center for Constitutional Rights points out that the United States has a duty under Article 1 of the Genocide Convention to prevent and punish acts of genocide, an obligation the U.S. Congress made law in 1988 when it ratified the convention and passed the Genocide Convention Implementation Act. The duty, is to prevent, the duty to prevent is heightened given the United States' considerable influence on Israel. The Biden administration, the plaintiffs say, is not merely failing to prevent Israel's genocide of Palestinians, it is actively abetting it. They also note, uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights, that courts have identified the providing of weapons and other materials to the perpetrators of genocide as a form of complicity. To be culpable, the provider need not share the recipient's genocidal intent. I do not know if this lawsuit will succeed, and of course I hope it will. I just know that we must do everything we can to stop the genocide using every tool, including continued protests and calls to representatives. They may not feel like much, but the pressure is building on our so-called leaders and the people in Gaza are counting on us not to let up and not to stop demanding a ceasefire and an end to the genocide. Thank you so much, Ali. Um, and uh, you mentioned the lawsuit which was filed in a federal court on Monday by the Center for Constitutional Rights. On behalf of the Palestinian Human Rights Group's Defense for Children International Palestine and Al-Haq and several Palestinians who are inside Gaza or are U.S. citizens with family there, uh, as you mentioned, among the plaintiffs is the Electronic Intifada's contributor, Ahmed Abu Ar Artema, one of the founders of Gaza's Great March of Return, uh, whose nearly 13-year-old son, Abdullah, was killed in an Israeli airstrike on October 24th. Joining us to talk about this is Sadaf Dust. Sadaf is an attorney and a Bertha Justice Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Uh, she's one of the lawyers representing the Palestinian plaintiffs who brought on this lawsuit. Sadaf, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and for all the awareness that you all are raising. Thank you. Can you begin by talking about uh, the legal definition of the accusation of genocide and genocidal intent? Um, what is the crime of genocide? And, and, uh, and let's kind of use that as a foundation to talk about uh, this lawsuit. Sure. And just to take a step back, uh, it's important to note that this lawsuit was brought against President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin and their official capacities and as representatives of the United States government. And it was brought under the United States violations for customary international law, which, Ali, as you have mentioned, is part of federal common law. 
And the two claims that this lawsuit brings is the United States violation of the duty to prevent genocide, but also the United States complicity in genocide. And so specifically when we're looking at genocide and the claim of genocide, um, that occurs when there are certain acts which are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a group. And that group can be identified by national, by ethical, by racial or geographic grounds, as well as religious grounds. And in the lawsuit, that group is the Palestinian people of Gaza. And as for the underlying acts that you look at when you're looking at genocide, that includes the killing of members of that group. So the killing of members of Palestinians in Gaza, which is in over 11,000 as of today. Um, another underlying act that would constitute genocide is deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life, which are calculated uh, to bring about physical destruction of that group, again, in whole or in part. And a, th a third underlying act could be uh, causing serious bodily or mental harm, which we're seeing now that Palestinians in Gaza who are injured are in the tens and thousands. And uh, this lawsuit lays out in the complaint day by day accounts of Israeli official statements showcasing their intent showcasing the fact that they are calling for the complete destruction of Gaza, for the elimination of Palestinians. Uh, October 7, when this most recent military assault was announced, Prime Minister Netanyahu specifically said that there would be an unprecedented military assault. And so the statements of genocidal intent have continued from October 7, every single day, multiple times a day. And when you pair that with the underlying acts, that are being committed, the case for genocide is irrefutable. It's very clear. Uh, and as far as the second or, or the claim for the United States duty to prevent um, under customary international law, there is a duty to prevent genocide, which is established the moment the United States learned of or should have learned of the risk of a genocide in Gaza. And this duty kicked in on October 7 based by not only the statements that occurred on October 7, showcasing intent to destroy the Palestinian population in Gaza, but the military assault that began on October 7. Um, and again, on October 9, there were additional acts that were created that further advanced this unfolding genocide. And that was when the complete siege of Gaza was announced that um, humanitarian aid would be blocked, electricity, fuel, food, water. These are basic necessities that would bring about the physical destruction of an entire people. And so the United States, as Ali and Nuri have mentioned, it's extremely important given their influence that they have on Israel through this decades-long history and partnership, but also as U.S. officials have stated themselves and as Israeli officials have affirmed that there is a partnership between the United States and Israel during this military assault and genocidal campaign, that U.S. and Israeli officials are standing shoulder to sh shoulder. Um, and so that's where complicity kicks in, which is the second claim brought forth in this lawsuit. And in addition to not only 
the political cover that the United States is providing and the diplomatic cover in international forums. The United States is funding this genocide. The United States is sending material weapons weekly. And as soon as October 7, that was made very clear that that would be happening. And we have seen multiple junctures of time that this has continued, this material support has continued. Sadaf, um, what, you know, the, I, I know that the Center for Constitutional Rights filed um, a preliminary injunction asking the court to put in place an order that would end U.S. military and diplomatic support to Israel. Um, what happens next? What does that trigger? Uh, and and yeah, what, what are the next steps? So the preliminary injunction is another mechanism that would require a response in an emergency hearing. So a response from defendants and an emergency hearing from the court, exactly as you said, asking for intervention. And this is important because lawsuits, they have their own timelines. Sometimes they can be prolonged, but a preliminary injunction is a step that can happen even before the lawsuit develops and continues to progress through the different stages. And we expect to have a hearing 35 days um, or within 35 days, and more information will come about after that hearing, as well as um, the different legal and advocacy efforts that can occur between then and after then as a result of the preliminary injunction. And what can happen if the court finds that Joe Biden, uh, Blinken, and uh, et al. are in violation of the Convention to Prevent Genocide, um, what would happen? Well, it would be monumental. I am not aware of a case where a sitting United States president has uh, had a lawsuit brought because of their complicity in genocide and their failure to prevent genocide. And so this, the preliminary injunction and the lawsuit asks for the intervention of courts um, to ensure that the United States does fulfill their legal obligations. And in this case specifically, we're asking for there to be a cessation of all military support, for there to be a cessation of the funding, the continuous weapons that are being sent over to Israel, which would have an impact in in Israel's ability to continue to further advance this genocide. But in addition to that, there are a number of different uh, pressure points that can happen as a result and leading up to this preliminary injunction hearing. And that is for more pressure to occur for the United States to stop blocking efforts that many other countries are calling for in trying to um, ensure that a ceasefire does happen, which I want to be clear, that is the bare minimum here. A ceasefire yeah. is the bare minimum. The United States has had a decades-long history of supporting Israel and, and enabling them and encouraging them even at times to carry on this military assault and continued military assault against Palestinians. And so all of this will come to light through this lawsuit in a way that is in a permanent public record, a state record. So, uh, go ahead. Sadaf, I'm just uh, 
I was very happy to read the lawsuit and that this effort is going ahead. I, I also, uh, it's very uh, painful to read the accounts of the Palestinian plaintiffs like Ahmed Abur uh, Tema, who I mentioned, and also uh, Munad al-Hadzallah, who uh, is also a plaintiff, a Palestinian-American plaintiff, and has lost more than 60 members of his extended family due to the Israeli bombing in Gaza. My question is, is there any kind of precedent for this? Are, we know that the courts in the United States are very deferential to the government and very rarely um, will try to tell the executive what to do. I, I think in the case of a genocide, you have to try everything. Is this a long shot? Does it have any chance of success? What, what do you think? What are lawyers saying? Well, we certainly don't know what defendants will say. They have a couple of weeks to respond. Um, but what I can share is that just last year, the U.S., within the context of Ukraine and Russia, made a submission to the International Court of Justice. And they have held the same standard, put forth the same standard that we are asking for today and saying that applies here, which is that the moment that a country is put on notice of the risk of genocide, there is a duty to use all measures within their power to prevent that genocide. So this isn't novel. The law is very clear. It's unambiguous. And quite frankly, it's black letter law that the political branches have already accepted and have already pushed forth as black letter law. So what we're asking the court to do is to simply uphold the law. Uh, it, it can't be more clear than that. And of course, there will be efforts to undermine the law, but the administration itself has recognized the importance of a state doing everything it can within their power. And in, in the case of the United States here, there is a heightened responsibility when there is that kind of relationship with the perpetrator um, to prevent genocide. All right. Uh, well, we're going to leave it there. Of course, we're going to be following this uh, lawsuit as it winds its way through federal court um, very carefully. Sadaf Dust, you are a lawyer at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Um, thank you so much for your work, and uh, we'll have you back on very soon. Thank Thanks you so much. much for having me. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. And Nora, just before we go on to the next part, just yeah. a couple of updates, because I'm, I'm looking at the news and... Uh, the uh, associate, the sorry, the French news agency AFP is reporting that the Israelis have now left the Al Shifa uh, complex, and uh, they say that uh, well, obviously they haven't. Uh, I expect there would have been a huge announcement if they'd found Mohammed Daif, the uh, head of Hamas's military wing, under the hospital, or if they'd found. Uh, you know, an arsenal of uh, long-range rockets or anything like that. Uh, and certainly they wouldn't have left the hospital if uh, if they'd found such things. But according to the media report I just uh, looked at, let me read this to you. Uh, this is from uh, the Associated Press, uh, and it's in the Times of Israel. 
uh, a senior military official speaking on condition of an uh, anonymity said soldiers had found, quote, concrete evidence, end quote, of Hamas's use of the hospital as a military facility. I'm just wondering uh, what that concrete evidence might be, whether it might be more uh, baby bottles, uh, mm -hmm. another another package of diapers. Maybe they found a, um, uh, a, a uh, I don't know, maybe more wall decorations or calendars. But certainly they're, they're also capable of placing uh, materials in there and photographing them. Uh, we saw a rather pathetic photo of a few rusty rifles uh, from uh, that they claim to have found uh, the other day, I think, at the in or near the Rantisi Hospital. Um, but whatever they claim they found or whatever they plant there, remember what they said. Remember what they claimed, that there was the command headquarters of uh, Hamas's military wing under the hospital and that there would be hostages there. So whatever they say now, uh, it's very clear that just like with all the other hospitals they raided, Al-Ahli, Rantisi, uh, the, the uh, Qatari hospital and others that uh, they they have not found um, anything. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to give that update. Thanks for that update, Ali. Uh, well, we want to bring in uh, our good friend Abdul Jawad Omar. He is a lecturer at Birzeit University in the occupied West Bank. Abdul Jawad, thank you so much for joining us again. And thank you for having me, Nora. Um, so uh, we've been focused obviously on what's been happening in Gaza, but we wanted to have you uh, give us a sense of um, the, the the what's happening in the West Bank um, as Israel's incursions, uh, demolitions um, continue apace, especially in the northern occupied West Bank, and also as settlers um, are are hunting Palestinians um, without without uh, pause. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening there as all eyes are on Gaza? I mean, the West Bank has been uh, suffering from an intensive offensive campaign by the Israeli military and settlers since the October 7th events. And they've included um, the militarization and the increased militarization of the, set the settlers themselves, the cutting of cities and towns, uh, the um, return of the checkpoints and, and cutting various towns from each other. Uh, it includes a wide arrest campaign, a mass confinement campaign that is happening with veracity and arresting a lot of student activists, uh, a lot of people around 2000 so far. It includes also um, um, uh, an attempt by the Israeli military to use this moment um, to try and uh, slow the rise of self-defense zones in areas like Tulkarim and Janine uh, by penetrating deep into the Janine refugee camp or the Nushams refugee camp in Tulkarim. So there's all these pressures all at once uh, coming in the West Bank. And they're indicative that it's a moment in the West Bank that um, um, is difficult. Um, intense in terms of at least um, recent history in terms of how many martyrs um, have been killed, almost 200 uh, 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 until this moment. So it's uh, um, it's also what is a bit different about it is that there's a lot of also daily humiliation that we don't really see um, on checkpoints. 
people being stopped, um, undressed. Uh, yesterday only, yes, Israeli uh, army released 30 Palestinian prisoners uh, naked uh, in Ofer uh, military camp. Um, uh, it was their moment of release, but they released them into the street naked. So there's all this, these forms of, of humiliation that are happening and layers of humiliation that are happening that also go unreported uh, at this moment in the West Bank. So this is a general, let's say, picture. Uh, we can also talk about the political picture of how these pressures might be impacting also the PA position um, uh, as it faces uh, three pressures, the pressure of um, Gaza and what's happening in Gaza and the feeling among a lot of Palestinians that it's not, it's betraying the resistance in Gaza. But also more importantly, um, that resistance could be successful, that it could be break Israel's iron wall, that it could um, uh, um, change political realities, etc. Uh, but also an Israeli dismissal in terms of financial sanctions that happened through the Israeli Ministry of Finance. So also the PA is being under pressure from Israel itself from its European and American partners and from the settler movement that we just described is pushing for more violence. So um, the PA is, is, is in the hot seat at this moment, trying to navigate this moment, try to, uh, trying to uh, take a, a wait and see approach. But I think it's a, a, a very uh, delicate and fragile moment for the current PA leadership. Yeah, there was talk uh, last week of um the Israeli government, uh, you know, mulling over whether or not to to have, you know, a, a PA representative kind of ride in on the back of a tank um, and and administer Gaza. Um, what what's the significance of that, you know, fantasy? Um, and and uh, and how are Palestinians in the West Bank responding to that? I mean, I think many in the West, I mean, Palestinian society, broadly speaking, doesn't see in the current PA leadership anything but a sort of Vichy government. And even those working within the PA itself, I don't think that anybody has illusions about the PA. Um, but why uh, I'm bo I'm bored. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but, yeah. but why do they tolerate it? Why do they tolerate it? I mean, where, I mean, where is... Where is the uprising in the West Bank against these traitors? I, I'm just going to ask it point blank like that. We hear that the people in the West Bank very unhappy. They, the, the polls say, every piece of evidence says they understand that the PA are traitors. Why do they tolerate traitors in their midst? Why do we still hear people saying, Sayyid al-Rais Abu Mazin, Akhun al-Rais Abu Mazin? You still hear this kind of language from some quarters. Maybe not most, but they they still tolerate it. The why why aren't they going and uh, 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 besieging the muqata and uh, getting these traitors out? Because I think for that to happen, uh, Ali, you need an organized social movement at least. Um, uh, it, it doesn't really happen by itself. It, even if a spontaneous rebellion happens, it's always. Um, possible to, to confine it and limit it. One of the problems in the West Bank in the past um, 16 years or so, specifically after the Second Intifada, was that um, organized opposition has become uh, very highly uh, problematic, highly uh, feeble and fragile. 
in terms of having an actual on the ground social movement. And whenever such social movements attempt to actually rise and build anything sort of an organizational structure, um, they're not necessarily um, uh, defeated by the PA itself, but actually taken to prison by uh, Israelis. So it's, it's, a, it's this dual control, this dual corrosion plays a big role. I'm not saying this is the only reason, but this is part of the reason why. But because Palestinians it's, it's, do go out and confront the Israelis, although, as we pointed out in an article a few days ago, uh, Yoav Galant and um, Herzi Halevi, the Israeli defense minister, and the Israeli military chief of staff have just in recent days praised the Palestinian Authority for crushing demonstrations against Israel and the West Bank. In other words, helping the PA in Ramallah helps Israel to reduce opposition to its genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. And yet Palestinians do go out and they do confront Israeli soldiers and everyday Palestinians are being killed by the Israeli soldiers. So there is a willingness to go out. There is a willingness to make tremendous unbearable sacrifices among people in the West Bank. And yet, the 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 police stations of the traitor regime remain in place. The uh, the uh, offices of the traitor regime, the Vichy regime, remain in place. I, I mean, I I personally, I'm not in the West Bank, and I can't speak on behalf of people there. But I don't understand it. People are willing to make enormous sacrifices, and yet they allow these traitors to continue to exist and speak in their name. And I, I just, I, I, I believe that without the PA, as well as other Arab regimes, but particularly the PA, Israel would not have a free hand to carry out this genocide. They are just as complicit in this genocide as, as almost anyone else you can, you can point to. And people seem to be, you know, for whatever reason, tolerating it much more than 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 they should people who are willing to make sacrifices i'm not i'm not saying that that they're not they are so I, I don't know i'm putting that puzzle to you no no i mean it's it's a big puzzle i mean uh, i've been thinking about it for at least uh, a decade or so <laughs> but um um it's it is a big puzzle i don't think there's one answer i, I would just is stating one of the obvious factors that you need in organizing social power to 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 defy the PA politically, um, but the puzzle is and, uh, and we know and just sorry Abu, we know yeah. that the PA is absolutely murderous when it comes to defending their power, just as these these thugs brutally tortured and murdered uh, Nazar Banat, uh, the 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 political activist who spoke very clearly against them. They murdered him in front of his family. So so I, I don't also want to underestimate the amount of risk people would face in, in, in challenging these thugs. But I also wanted to be clear who they are. They will murder Palestinians if their positions as Israel's collaborators depends on it. Yeah, but I think, look, it goes beyond that. I think it's there is an intrinsic fear in Palestinian society of, of uh, inner fighting and an attempt to avoid it. Even in the revolutionary Palestinian tradition is that if you have an internal contradiction, you should take it out on the Israelis and not, um, you know, 
take it out within uh, your own group so or within the Palestinian community itself. There's that notion that plays deeply, and, and the PA has successfully also weaponized this notion of fitna as part of its policy of control. So um, remember, the PA is not just the clique that is ruling. It, it, it is also a, an entire bureaucracy and an entire economy that sustains many people materially. And despite the fact that these people might not like the policies of their of 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 of, of the elites that are controlling them, at the same time they 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 remain silent. They remain uh, you know uh, unwilling, let's say, partners in in in, in what's happening. So there's there's a lot of social dynamics at play, a lot of also fear, not from the PA itself, but from Israel and its violence, the violence it shows uh, today in Gaza, the fear that that uh, violence will come to the West Bank one way or another. There's a lot of different elements to this. I'm not trying to like make you know excuses. What I'm trying to say is that if if you want to chart uh, why people understand on the one hand that this is a Vichy government and on the other hand doesn't do anything about it. Um, and it's an interesting question for anybody who wants to analyze the situation or, or, or attempt to even change that situation or intervene in it. Um, it's 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 multi-layered. And I think what we've seen in the past at least two, three years is an unbinding from the PA from part of its social base, specifically in the north of the West Bank. The self-defense zones in the refugee camp of Jenin and Tulkarim and the old city of Nablus uh, no matter how successful these self-defense zones were, were uh, symptomatic of uh, an unbiting that is happening among a lot of Fatih people, among a lot of the social base that actually worked or works in the PA, moving towards a politics of confrontation and defiance and allowing for these spaces to rise. Now, what I see the problem is that the middle class in, 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 in the West Bank, the middle and upper classes in the West Bank are remain kind of in between, hedging in between, remain in a wait and see approach. They don't like the current leadership and where they're leading them, um, their lack of uh, dignity, their lack of defiance of Israel, their inability to, to participate or, or even uh, uh, show any form of political solidarity with what's happening in Gaza, even the minimum. Not only that, they're complicit in what's happening in Gaza, as you outlined. And at the same time, um, there is um, an unwillingness still to confront the PA head-on by unions, by uh, academics and cultural elites, and um, you know, I, that is the reality. Uh, until this moment, it still remains. Uh, there's still not much have changed in terms of breaking that ceiling in terms of people's participation and direct confrontation with the PA. And interesting enough, you, you mentioned Nizar. I think Nizar. I knew Nizar for at least eight years, nine years, and he used to speak all the time. Um, and what for me was interesting about Nizar's story is that only the two years before his murder uh, by PA thugs, that people started to listen to what he was saying. Um, and it showed to me that despite the fact that he was speaking for all of these years, since 2011 or 12, when I met him for, for the first time, that he actually, that people were willing to listen only in the past two years and he became a phenomena and he went viral in palestinian uh, online which shows that things are changing in the west bank but they're changing slowly and the fight in gaza came and erupted at a moment that that kind of process is, is still not mature enough for it to actually produce a social movement that can confront uh the pa specifically in a moment that israel decided to use that moment to 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 take the gloves off 
and show its uh, uh, uglier face, uh, although it always has shown an ugly face. So, yeah. And, and of course, it's important to point out that Palestinians do go out and protest against the PA, but it does tend to be spontaneous. And uh, we've seen it in cities up and down the West Bank. And the PA does send out its security, so-called security forces, never ever to protect Palestinians against the, the uh, brutal fascistic Israeli settlers, but only to protect uh, the Israeli occupation and itself from the Palestinian people. Uh, but as you pointed out, uh, the, the, the role of cultural elites uh, and NGOs is uh, an important one because we also know that after the Oslo Accords were signed in 1993, there was a massive effort uh, as part of the so-called international community to co-opt and buy off the political movements and turn them into salaried NGO-type uh, elites. And that has been successful. The other element, the economic element, you talked about the middle class or the, the bourgeoisie, as we might call them, uh, and the upper class in the West Bank. Also, uh, in the last 20-plus uh, years, there's been an effort to create a kind of a neoliberal economic class, which directly benefits from the occupation in a sense. They, they, they are uh, the people who are the import agents for various international brands, and all of that business goes through Israel. And uh, so for them, the status quo may not be their preferred choice, but it's certainly a tolerable one and one where they're, they're able to, to continue to Profit. So those are people who have, a, in a sense, a stake in the status quo. So those elements are not at all unique to Palestine. But I suppose what is, in a way, uh, unique is that we we, we uh, advanced uh, from you know colonization to comprador bourgeoisie and bourgeois state without ever getting the state. We, we skipped that step and went straight to this uh, neoliberal hell. And I'll also point out there was a, a news item the other day, a nightmarish news item on top of everything else, that Israel wants to bring Tony Blair in as the so-called humanitarian coordinator for Gaza. I mean, this is like bringing, they might as well bring uh, Ariel, the ghost of Ariel Sharon in to be the... Uh, a humanitarian coordinator for Gaza. But Blair, as the so-called quartet representative in the uh, early and mid-2000s, or uh, yeah, the mid-2000s, I guess, when did he leave office? So after 2007, in the period when they brought Salam Fayyad, a former, um, was he International Monetary Fund or World Bank? I, I can't remember, but one of them, a former official, they brought him in as the so-called prime minister who would um, prepare the Palestinians for independence and institution building and all this stuff, this very neoliberal project. But what Blair was doing as part of the, uh, the so-called institution building and capacity building was pushing mortgage loans on Palestinians and debt culture. And I remember researching and writing about this, that 
they were pushing credit cards on Palestinians, people who, you know, very few of which had a stable or secure income, but they were pushing uh, consumer debt, buy a car, buy a computer, go out and buy new furniture, we'll put it all on a credit card, um, go out and get a mortgage for a, a house, you'll have to pay it for the rest of your life. But the thinking behind this, as Blair and his cohorts expressed it, was that if Palestinians are tied to these kinds of things, then they're also tied to the status quo, and they have less time to go out and challenge the status quo. And you also tell them that their salvation is not in collective action and collective liberation, but it's in individual solutions like get a mortgage, get a credit card, get a car, get a new cell phone, and so on. That was the explicit goal of Tony Blair and company under Salam Fayyad. My question for you is how successful was that? Is that something that has taken root? Uh, are we seeing that as a factor? Well, I mean, my my issue with a lot of these forms of analytics is that they presume that there is some sort of ideological hegemony that comes out of this, in a sense that Palestinians consent to their own uh, unmaking, to the lack of collective action. And I think there's also a lot of uh, violence in preventing the resurgence of an organized uh, uh, political movement. And this is, I think, more fundamental to me, having seen, for instance, how despite all of what you said, we still have an organized armed movement in the north of the West Bank with all of its condition. Despite this whole individualism and atomism that we're speaking, social atomization, etc., we still have, for instance, operations that are also kind of atomistic in terms of 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 of, of their uh you know individuals doing operations and resistance operations as we've seen in the past years since at least 2015 in the west bank so and jerusalem so i think in many ways i don't think this is a completely successful i don't think the west bank has been pacified in a way that um they imagined but of course it's not like gaza where gaza in 2005 managed to, uh, for a lot of reasons, partially because of the West Bank, no? because Israel at that moment decided to defeat the resistance in the West Bank, and at the same time it couldn't tolerate its settler presence in, in Gaza in 2005. It withdrew from Gaza, leaving this liberated space for it to develop a, a resistance movement that is organized and now launching uh, the October 7th attack. Well, while in the West Bank we had the arrest and the pacification and the destruction of the entire organized resistance movement at that moment, um, which in the Second Intifada uh, played an important and crucial role in, in a lot of the operations uh, uh, that happened uh, and occurred. Actually, most of the operations maybe we can, we can say are came from the West Bank. So I do think that it's not a totally successful project. I think it's fracturing. I think it's weakening. I think that we see the signs all around of it. I still do think that um, a social, uh, an organized social movement has not risen. And whenever it's trying to rise, and I'm not here talking about armed movements, but I'm talking about social movements generally from middle class orientation that meets the working class radical politics of, of, of the Janin refugee camp and the Nur Shams Tulkarem camp. This is still the missing component that is not uh, going far. And I think part of the reason is not only because there's no social movement, is that the political parties that exist in the West Bank, 
including Hamas, including Islamic Jihad, including some others, have not really organized around uh, uh, such an idea and have chosen different modes of organization, including backing up the, our armed resistance movement while maintaining also their middle class in a way uh, uh, silent and, and not really active or proactive in terms of uh, political engagement. So, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in terms of analyzing why the West Bank, we can go into it more, we can speak about how also the lack of alternative to the PA worries people, creates a lot of anxiety and fear. What would happen if the PA breaks down? How would the day-to-day -day life within a system, this economic system, this political system that, that we exist undergo? Um, what would be Israel's reaction? Who would organize uh, you know, civil affairs, educational affairs, health, etc. All of these are questions that need to be organized around the social movement. And again, there, that social movement that could provide an alternative have not provided an alternative yet and have not risen to take up that challenge. Well, I want to bring in uh, our contributing editor, John Elmer, um, to... Uh, actually, I want both of you to talk about um, kind of your uh, assessment of the military situation uh, in, in, both, in both Gaza and the West Bank. Um, but uh, John, maybe if, if you have any uh, thoughts on what Abdul Jawad was saying about um, kind of this, uh, this political dynamic inside the West Bank and, and how that's uh, playing into what we're seeing in Gaza. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, not to reiterate everything Abdul Jawad said, but I think that there was an, an organized uh, effort by the U.S. and Israel to destroy resistance in the West Bank after the Second Intifada and after the election of Hamas. Um, and that was a, a really concerted process that happened and people saw that um, destruction. And I think also that there's a, a confusion between the regime and the services of government, which is what people are really have a hard time with, is attacking the PA that provides, you know, schools and hospitals and basic municipal services that um, would be provided by a state. And then when you change the government, those resources don't get destroyed. Um, they transfer to the new government. And that didn't happen in the West Bank. The institutions were wiped out. Um, and I think that that's, you can't really understate that, especially after the second intifada, um, the suffering that uh, Israel inflicted upon the West Bank, destroying people's livelihoods and their jobs. Um, and then after that, they have a democratic election where they elect the wrong people, according to the Americans and Israelis, and the Americans and Israelis turn around and destroy those institutions or they prop up the Salem Fayyad parts of the institutions instead of um, you know, the, um, the state that the Palestinians themselves like have a right to administer through an authority, whether it's the collaborator Vichy regime, they have the right to services and, a, and an effective governance that allows their general life to continue. And Israel makes it clear that that's not going to happen if you resist um, the security forces that are out in the streets, they're going to destroy your institutions, the jobs of your family members. Um, and I think that can't be understated, especially in an era when the when Israel was building walls around all of these West Bank communities. So now they don't have as much access to resist against Israel. They're trapped inside of a ghetto 
and and told that unless you're fighting against your own police force that's inside the ghetto that you're not resisting that's a very high bar to be asking of people and i think that that's important to say um, because they're trapped inside the people aren't traveling all over the west bank um, people are trapped inside their individual communities behind this 800 kilometer wall that israel built as a response to the resistance of the second intifada which also it's worth noting um, involved especially in the early days significantly involved the PA security forces at that time, who are very different than the PA security forces today. Um, and Israel's very aware of that. So the entire training of the security forces is completely different than it was in the Oslo era. That's what Keith Dayton, you know, he said he was making new men. That was what he was defining it. You know, Dayton couldn't, this was the US uh, military general that was put in charge of destroying um, Hamas after they were elected. And so I think that sometimes we confuse um, like government with the regime. There's lots of people that have legitimate jobs in the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank that look and see uh, that any kind of resistance against the brutal regime that they don't like uh, means that all of a sudden all their family is uh, unemployed. And um, those are very personal attacks. Um, and the ability to build a social movement that Abdel Jawad was talking about is, is prevented, as he said very clearly, it's prevented by Israel. The people will be arrested by the PA, then arrested by Israel, then arrested by the PA. Um, that's the constant underpinning uh, of what's going on, is that the, it, Israel has, has conflated um, municipal governance, um, general services of the state, um, with this collaborator regime that nobody supports that regime. And that's why there's not elections in the West Bank since the last time but th that Palestinians was by, did that democracy was wrong. That was by design, John, of course, because when the the uh, the whole Oslo concept and, and the Israelis' uh, idea behind it was, you know, the Oslo Accords in 1993, and it goes back further than the Oslo Accords, but the concept was always the Palestinians will get at most autonomy. And autonomy means things like you can run your own schools, but of course we surveil them and make sure we approve of the textbooks. Uh, you can pick up the garbage, you can run the health clinics and that kind of thing. And so it, it was built into the whole concept of the so-called peace process that that is all the Palestinians get. And so some Palestinians, and certainly the PA, have attached great significance to their control over these things. That, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the fact that the PA runs these services is some great national achievement and some great step towards uh, this uh, mythical statehood that somehow never uh, is reached. I remember a few years ago, they made a big deal about when they changed the letterhead of the Palestinian Authority from Palestinian Authority to State of Palestine. Uh, so they also get caught up in this kind of symbolism because they don't have anything else uh, to, to offer people. I agree, and I appreciate that uh, the... the, the um, the the nuance with which Abud is uh, with with which Abdul is answering 
the question because, and, and you, John, because it points to the dilemmas that people face at the individual level and at the collective level. Yeah, the consequences are real, right? People saw those institutions destroyed. They saw what happened. Um, people were arrested for who they voted for and then tortured in Israeli prison or, or tortured by the Palestinian Authority to say who they voted for and then arrested by Israel because they're a supporter of Hamas. Um, the consequences are extreme, extremely high. And that, and that social movement, to build a social movement under occupation, um, it, it's a it's a serious challenge, and every time Palestinians have done it, um, those institutions have been liquidated, and it's not it's not even totally clear. Just even in a theoretical discussion, what you say when you say what comes after the PA, because for a lot of people, the PA means means those things that you said, Ali, like trash collection or or whatnot. Um, you know, between those kind of things that are run by UNRWA and they're run by the PA, those are things that Palestinians have a right to um, that are destroyed as soon as that um, resistance happens. And those arrests um, and the increase of arrests, I mean, those stories that Abdul Jawad said about the arrests, uh, you know, like Israel is going at those arrests um, and torturing people in prison and and. Uh, letting them because they know that there's a prisoner exchange coming. And so they're actually having it out on the prisoners, you know, making TikTok videos. Um, but these are people's friends and family. Everybody knows the consequences uh, of these kind of actions. So spontaneous action is is attacked immediately, um, as Abdel Jawad said, in multiple uh, spheres, because you have the Israelis acting in multiple ways through the Palestinian government, and you have the Palestinian regime themselves who are trying to, um, you know, protect protect their own protect their own status. So it's it's like a multi layered war that happens on people constantly, and the consequence of it is apparently that you'll lose those basic institutions, which is what happened in the Intifada when Israel attacked when the P when um, you know, the Palestinian security forces joined the Intifada, Israel destroyed all of the institutions uh, of their security forces. Um, th th those are very high consequences that um, that make it complicated for people to, um, you know, to operate in these kind of um, idealistic ways. Well, I want uh, to turn to uh, Gaza um, and John and Abdul Jawad, uh, maybe John first. Like, what um, what have you been looking at, especially since, uh, as Ali talked about in his opening remarks, the absolute uh, siege of Al Shifa Hospital over the last forty eight hours? Um, how how do we start uh, to understand what's happening uh, militarily in Gaza? how come they don't go into these tunnels? I can't believe that we watch these propaganda videos talking about elevator shafts going into the tunnels, but they're, they don't go down and look for their people. I mean, I, it, it's crazy. The lies are obviously ridiculous, but when the actual practical uh, implications of what they're saying, like 
can you imagine if you were one of those captives and Israel decided to take Nick Robertson from CNN on a guided tour of a pediatric hospital taking photographs before you actually went down in the tunnel to see if your people are down there? Uh, you know, Israel's saying that we're, you know, we're getting, we're learning more information about where, uh, where people are held underground because we're collapsing all of these tunnels. You're collapsing the tunnels. That's how you know where people are. So you're saying you're dropping tunnels on top of your own people. I mean, that's the thing that sticks out um, beyond the absolutely appalling situation at Shifa that I think Ali covered uh, well, and we covered on the last show. And I don't even know what to say about it's so brutal that the primary military objective of Israel has been pediatric hospitals and the biggest hospital in the Gaza Strip that they don't go looking down in the tunnels to see if it's connected to something. And if their people are all in the basement of Shifa Hospital, wouldn't you want to go looking for them? So it's obviously that that the they don't care about the prisoners. Um, there's well, an they did go looking in El Shifa and they didn't find anyone. But jo John, you're, I think you're being a tad unfair on the Israelis here. Let's slow down a bit. Let, let's, let's back up because... I want to put something to you that they, they say in, um, in Haaretz uh, today. They say that, I mean, they're bragging about all the things they've done. You, you said they're not doing anything, but just listen to what they say they're doing. Uh, they say, the IDF's Division 162 Commander Brigadier General Itzhak Cohen said that uh, Israeli forces were, quote, dismantling the Hamas centers and capabilities that the organization has built over the years. And he's talking specifically about Shati refugee camp in the north of Gaza, uh, which is along the coast. He says that um, they say that the IDF destroyed many targets in the camp, including central buildings and power institutions belonging to Hamas, from which terrorist activity against Israel was directed. So that's what they say they're doing. They've, they've demolished some buildings in a refugee camp. Isn't that going to really hurt Hamas? They also showed the solar panels on, that fed to the hospital, uh, at the pediatric hospital, and they said that that's proof that there's a tunnel because there's uh, solar panels on the roof, when really what was happening in Gaza was when people fled their homes uh, people uh, got together themselves and linked up the solar panels on other people's personal houses and channeled them to the hospital so that the pediatric hospital could continue functioning. Um, and these are basic things that are happening. I mean, the idea that the Israelis are saying that that going into Shifa is proof that they can go anywhere, that they can reach anywhere in Gaza, that's proof that they haven't reached anywhere in Gaza. The only, the only target Targets they have hit are soft targets. They hit uh, Al Nasser Hospital, Rantizi Pediatric Hospital, Al Shifa Hospital. They blew up the the, the Palestinian Parliament that hasn't met since uh, those elections that we talked about. Um, they're blowing up soft targets in Shati Camp. I'm glad you mentioned that because I wrote down. I follow the IDF, of course, all the time, and on Friday morning. Um, on Friday, when they were attacking uh, Shifa Hospital, they also said that they were on the outskirts of Shati Camp. 
And then on Saturday, they released a report describing how they were on the outskirts of Shadi camp. On Sunday, they showed photos on the outskirts of Shadi camp on the beach uh, with the pride flag and, uh, you know, people playing fiddles on the roof of their tanks that, that on the beach, on the outskirts of Shadi. So they're not even penetrating the first urban area necessary to even have a fig leaf of uh, of operational success in Gaza. They haven't penetrated the Shati camp. Today, just this morning, they talked about how they're fighting on the camp's defenses on the outer edge of the camp. So they have no willingness to go in on the ground and fight, but they say they can reach anywhere by attacking the neonatal ward uh, of a hospital, that they could bring in uh, a box of food that says baby food in English on it, uh, but they don't bring fuel to power the uh, dialysis machines. I mean, you almost have to have a, a, an expertise in infrastructure to even talk about this because it's so incredible. I don't have the knowledge to talk about every ward in the hospital and how insane this attack is on that particular ward. Um, there, the, the totality of this assault on Shifa and then to pull out and, and to brag about it, um, to photograph uh, blowing up the the parliament but now uh, and I they mean, I also track of even what uh, John, day it is but John, it's almost three also, weeks of ground war and we haven't seen a single combat footage from the idf not one they also today this was reported on al jazeera arabic earlier uh, today they bombed the last functioning flour mill in gaza this is after bombing many or most of the bakeries so uh, they are they are hitting these uh, these these. It must have been a Hamas flour mill making Hamas bread to be delivered in Hamas bakeries to Hamas children. Isn't that doesn't that make sense to you, John? <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. that same thing. They frame it as as if it's Hamas's last stand, as at Shifa Hospital, as if the forty thousand Qassam Brigades fighters that are in the Gaza Strip just all threw themselves at the first days of the ground invasion and are all dead and their last stand at Shifa Hospital. Uh, there's no reason to believe that the Palestinians have thrown all of their most significant um, capabilities at the initial invasion of armor for the Israelis. There's, uh, there's lots of reason to believe that the longer the Israelis stay in these fixed positions, um, the more likely the guerrillas will attack them rather than attacking the, uh, the front, the sharp spear of their invasion down the Mediterranean beach, which is, uh, I mean, I, it's it's unbelievable. The first time we saw dismounted IDF troops in 17 days of the ground war, I've lost track of what day, it's just one big long day. The only time we've seen uh, dismounted infantry was with Nick Robertson uh, pretending, they, the IDF pretended in their staging zones um, that they were walking beside a tank. And then as soon as there was any kind of contact, everybody dove on the ground. And the Israelis talked about, I mean, it's, it's just crazy. So we're not seeing anywhere down by the Palestinian parliament uh, dismounted uh, IDF soldiers fighting street to street. 
um, and holding territory. We're seeing uh, the Israelis move down the beach and then strike hospitals as their primary objective. Um, and then to then go and then not even have uh, the photo op. I mean, that the photo op that you described at the beginning of the show is just so embarrassing um, to be underpinning this brutality um, with that kind of idiocy. I mean, I wish I had a more articulate way to describe that, but it's just unbelievable to be watching. To watch the assault on the hospital, um, to, to th that the Palestinians needed five days to get a bulldozer in to dig a mass grave on Shifa property um, because the Israelis were attacking the bulldozers that were doing that. The level of depravity is just unbelievable. And the the combination, it doesn't come with any military uh, successes that we're, we're, we're seeing. We're just hearing fake numbers um, by the Israelis and we're seeing photograph, uh, video evidence of them blowing up buildings that they've already hit with airstrikes and then shelled. And then now they blow them up with their tanks um, with a pride flag on the beach. It's um, it's unbelievable. And from the beginning of the show, like that war crime uh, uh, case against the Israelis, they say it every day. They've been laying out the case um, while attacking Shifa and saying that they can, that proves that they can go anywhere. Um, you have Gallant, the defense minister, who was incidentally also charged with war crimes for his uh, role as the head of the Southern Command during Operation uh, Cast Lead. He said that we're going to fight into the South, that the North is just the first objective, that they're going to go down and fight in Khan Yunus, even if it takes uh, months and months. So we're seeing, um, you know, an attack on a on a. Um, on defenseless, un undefended um, civilian infrastructure, and then it being lauded as a military uh, success. The, John, and this is a question for, I mean, for, for everyone, but it, it's now been 40 days. The Israelis have not, as you said, not presented any military achievement it's hard to tell whether they, you know, they lie a lot. We know they lie a lot. We've debunked many of their lies as have others. And they put out a lot of propaganda for the media and for the governments that they support them. The question is if they, the question I'm not sure about is do they believe it? Did they believe that there is this multi-level bunker under Al-Shifa Hospital that they've been talking about for years. Do they believe that or not? And the or is, was it just like they got to be somewhere? They must be under the hospital. The, but the point is, after 40 days, they have no military achievements. They, they, as you said, we've not seen any combat footage. They've not been able to show any Hamas resistance fighters or any resistance fighters from any other faction surrendering or being captured they uh have not claimed that they have killed any of the top leaders of hamas even though they said they were going to kill them uh and and they're talking about we we destroyed hamas centers so i'm guessing they've demolished some buildings 
as if as they demolished the parliament building we saw uh, as if you know hamas sits around in conference rooms making plans for how to carry out military resistance as if the resistance requires buildings and conference rooms so the the question is so it seems clear i mean we want to be cautious because we don't we don't want to be triumphalist we don't want to be hyperbolic but it seems safe to say that they haven't achieved much militarily in 40 days and if everything they've told people so far like there's a command center under shifa there's a command center under Rantisi hospital there's a command center under this hospital or that hospital and everything has been a bust you know everything has been a bust so far then at a certain point when do they need to start climbing down off this tree and how can they do that because this morning netanyahu doubled down and said we are going to destroy hamas we said we're going to destroy hamas we're going to do it and on the other hand hamas as you say they probably haven't even committed a fraction of their resources to this battle yet the easy part is rolling into gaza just like for the united states the easy part was rolling into iraq or rolling into afghanistan the hard part begins after you say mission accomplished when the resistance really begins to harass and wear down the occupation forces so i'm just i don't know where this is going because these readies can't seem unable to achieve what they set out to achieve or claim they're going to achieve and yet they don't show any signs of looking for a way out yeah i mean i think it's important to say that this is without precedent we don't it's not possible to reach into history and find an example um that we can say well this this happened this the scale uh of what's going on the the open brazenness of of saying that they're going to do this liquidation um you know in a lot of ways they're unprecedented in a lot of ways it's not unprecedented because in 2006 we'll remember they said the exact same thing about hezbollah they were going to eradicate hezbollah they were going to disarm them um i remember the same exact same people saying no ceasefire no ceasefire and then the ground operation began the israelis got smoked and all of a sudden they wanted a ceasefire um i i mean i guess we're predicting i i don't i don't know i mean i guess that's dangerous but i don't know what the way what the what the goal is with shifa um other than to maybe give the israelis a way out and say that we you know attacked the command center but even when they said it was a command center they they slipped into that press conference that this was just a visual representation uh, a visual you know uh, representation that had no uh, intelligence connection where it showed the underground uh, bunkers in shifa with uh, the militants on their computers uh, planning attacks and whatnot um they didn't have any uh, realistic connection to what's going on um I, i'm not sure because i think that the reality is that if they're planning to stay um on the Shifa campus is that is that the goal that they can then set up on the Shifa campus and and say that any attacks um are uh Palestinians attacking hospitals I mean I I don't know I think it's dangerous to speculate it it's 
without precedent what we're seeing right now. And the Israelis have lost their minds um, because of what happened on October 7th, because of how soundly they were defeated militarily on October 7th. And one of the things that the IDF did say that was a success uh, of one of their operations in the north was that they found um, all of the, or so they found some of the gear that had been captured by their collapsed forces in the south. And one of these um, brigades was able to find uh, flak jackets and whatnot that were taken from their bases when there, you know, more than a dozen bases and outposts were overrun. So the Israelis are sending out messages that says, like, this is a success because we got 10 flak jackets back from a unit that lost 50 soldiers on October 7th being overrun um, by Hamas, by Qassam fighters. Um, so, you know, they're their military successes that they're saying themselves are very, very thin. Um, and the the statements that they're making, which are, as we know from the beginning of the show, going to be put into a war crimes uh, uh, trial for intent, showing intent, the statements don't match um, the military progress and they don't match um, the seeming ability. I mean, if you're going to hold Shifa Hospital, you have to get out of your tanks. You have to control the neighborhoods. You have to control the intersections. Um, we're we're seeing uh, Palestinian resistance videos with troop masses. Um, you know, as if they've never fought in a war. We saw that thermobaric grenade attack in Beit Hanun, where the soldiers were standing in the window. Um, as if they'd never uh, been fighting before. So we're clearly not seeing that. We're seeing them hiding in their fortress uh, armored vehicles um, and then moving into buildings. Um, it, it's not clear where, when they set up, how they're going to stay in those spots. If they're being hit when they're moving, um, it would serve that it would be a lot easier to hit them once they're in a fixed position for a considerable amount of time. So it's hard to even know. Um, I mean, also they said that they're going to eliminate uh, every Hamas person for future generations. You want to create a new generation of Qassam fighters, do what you're doing right now it, it, to all these children who are watching their lives be destroyed, who are on um, like virtual death marches, uh, with no food or water, walking for eight hours as a six and seven and eight, nine-year-old kid. What do you think that kid's going to think in the future? Do you think he's going to say, I don't want to fight with Kassam? They're creating a massive movement. And the last time they fought this war, uh, these types of wars, they did that too. In 1982, um, the last time that they carried out these kind of barbaric siege, starvation, um, and said that they had liquidated the resistance, um, they created Hezbollah, which over the years um, increased over and over till 2006, when Israel said, we can't take this anymore. We can't have this uh, this armed group on our border, which is identical to what they said uh, about the Qassam brigades. Hezbollah is like literally twice, if not more, the size that they were in, in 2006. So the idea that you can um, destroy uh, social movements by killing children. Um, it's just such an, an absurd on its face. You're creating fighters for life um, who are committed to a struggle because they know the consequences. The Israelis aren't committed to this struggle. As soon as the consequences happen for them, which is probably part of the reason why they're not rolling out their casualty figures in such a way, 
they're very fragile and they're trying to defend something. They're trying to carry out a revenge operation um, to, to, to make it acceptable what happened on October 7th when their army got overrun um, by less than 1,500 fighters. Um, and now they're going into Gaza just two kilometers away from where they collapsed to fight 40 or 50,000 people, plus any civilians that decide, you know what, I'm not going to just sit by and allow an armed occupation of my neighborhood. They're going to fight too. So it's in terms of a military uh, success or accomplishments, I think history clearly shows that the opposite is is what's happening right now. And let's just one one thing that has come up in the last few minutes that I want to share with you. Uh, maybe we can, uh, Tamara, I'm going to drop this uh, and maybe you can uh, put it up on screen for us. Uh, this is, uh, in, uh, it's in the Times of Israel, but it's actually from the French news agency. Uh, and it says French President Emmanuel Macron harshly condemns the bombardment of civilian infrastructure in the war between Israel and Hamas. Quote, we condemn in the strongest terms all bombardment of civilians and in particular civilian infrastructure, which must be pr uh, protected under international law, Macron tells reporters in Bern during a state visit to Switzerland. And I can tell you from having followed, I, I've been, I'm actually on the French foreign ministry's uh, mailing list and i've been trying to get off it for years but uh, <laughs> they, they they just ignore my uh requests to be unsubscribed so but so i'm condemned to reading statements from the french foreign ministry for the rest of my life it seems however <laughs> what i can tell you from from that is that it is extremely rare i understand these are words but it is extremely rare for France or any European country to use that kind of language regarding Israel. They usually say we're concerned or we're deeply concerned or deeply concerned is usually the limit. To say condemn in the strongest possible terms for something Israel is doing is extremely unusual. Um, and of course, we saw Justin Trudeau, uh, your very own Prime Minister, uh, uh, John, uh, the other day, who is an ardent, staunch Zionist? I mean, like nobody else in the West. Uh, you know, maybe his love for Israel is only se second only to his love for Waffen SS veterans. I'm not sure. But um, what, what I what I want to say is that he came out and he gave a uh, uh, a statement that, like, he wouldn't call for a ceasefire. We watched on a previous live stream when he accidentally almost called for a ceasefire and had to correct himself. This time, he he didn't call for a ceasefire, but he said maybe Israel could stop killing so many babies. And Netanyahu went absolutely nuts on him. And Netanyahu, like, tweeted at him like he was, uh, 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 you know, just a little child who needed to be corrected. Sorry, I'm, I'm dropping a pen there. So I don't know if we have a video of, uh, of Trudeau, but anyway, that, that's... So what, what is this telling us about the patience of Israel's staunchest allies? Is this an effect? Are, are they, do they have consciences buried deep down in their robotic brains? Or is this an effect of the growing 
public opposition we're seeing. And also the other day, I think it was yesterday, in the New York Times, there was an article about congressional staffers. So these are the young people, the interns and the members of staff who work for the 535 members of Congress, and they held a protest. And I'm just amazed at Tamara for being able to pull these things up so fast when I did not give any advance notice. So thank you for that, Tamara. But they held a protest on the steps of Capitol Hill, and they said there's a quote in there, actually, which I'm just paraphrasing from memory, where they say, we are the staffers who answer the phone calls from our constituents, and they're overwhelmingly demanding a ceasefire. There it is. There's yeah, we are the staffers answering their calls. Most of our bosses on Capitol Hill are not listening to the people they represent. We demand our leaders speak up. Uh, and then, of course, we saw the demonstrations all over the world, the biggest protest in British history, according to some. Uh, sources in London. What is going on? Is this all having an impact finally, and will it stop the bombing? I don't know who should answer that question, but that's the question I have. I'd love to hear from uh, Abdul Jawad on that one. <laughs> I can I, I can speak to it a bit. I think that what you're just pointing out, and what John was laying out as well, in terms of this very cautious Israeli approach to its military campaign using these armored vehicles, um, not really using its infantry in deep penetration and street battles. If you want to finish the job fast, you need to actually go in and, and finish the job fast. You need to go to the tunnels. You need to actually clear the multidimensional space that the resistance occupies. And Israelis are not doing that because they're afraid, they're more afraid than just what happened on 7th of October, which was big. They're afraid that they're going to meet also another military disaster in the Gaza Strip. So they're attempting to do a show. They're attempting to do uh, symbolic victories. They're attempting to show some images, some successes. They're attempting to rely on some intelligence to perhaps uh, get some form of uh, you know, assassination. But that's a slow process. It's a very slow process. It needs a lot of time. And at the same time, the, the diplomatic and political clock in America, in Canada, in France, in Europe, in all those that support uh, Israel's campaign right now and supported its genocide, runs differently. It, it has different interests. It's afraid of regional escalation. It's, it's uh, fearful of uh, the backlash at home. It's, uh, there's a growing solidarity movement. And I think this is historically true that whenever uh, a significant event happens in Palestine, actually the Palestine movement grows. It does not actually, uh, uh, you know, seed. It, it actually grows. It actually becomes, we have more supporters. We have more organizations becoming interested, more people becoming interested, more people learning about what happens in Palestine and become more active around the issue of Palestine and the Palestinian cause more broadly. So I think all of these factors are playing a definite role in, in making the Israeli military clock run differently than the, than the European and perhaps later on, at least in the next couple of weeks, the American also diplomatic cover and, and clock that, that exists now for Israel. So I, I think that's, that's a problem. And that's why the Americans were actually pushing Israel to do things faster. They were actually sending these different signals like you should uh, 
prevent civilian death because we cannot tolerate too much civilian death but at the same time you should do things fast and at the same time you should finish it fast and so they were like pushing Israel you should go in and sacrifice your own soldiers and actually after this big event of the 7th October you seem to have this unified will to sacrifice your soldiers to actually go for a battle um yeah to meet, you know, to go there and, you know, maybe lose hundreds of soldiers, but at the end come out victorious. But the Israelis are still choosing this very cautious, slow, and definitely a, 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 an approach that at the end harms Palestinian civilians and attempts to drive them out, perhaps also because in their fantasy or perhaps in their planning also, there's, there's a, a wager that they might be able to cleanse the Gaza Strip at some point if if the political horizon for that opens up so i mean that's at least my general reading for what's uh going on well before uh we wrap uh abdul jawad you wrote this extraordinary piece in mondo weiss uh about a week ago it's called hopeful pathologies in the war for palestine a reply to adam schatz and this was an essay in response to an article that Schatz wrote in the London Review of Books about, uh, it was called Vengeful Pathologies. Um, and, and you write that this essay is an embodiment of a more expansive intellectual labyrinth that haunts Western intellectuals. It characterizes the Palestinians as, quote, necessary and inevitable victims, rendering them visible only as archival footnotes in yet another uh, efficacious settler colonial enterprise. It is not curious, one might ask, that the very sympathy shown to Palestinians appears directly proportional to their perceived inability to confront the uniform machinery of settler colonialism. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the problematic nature of uh, an essay like Schatz's and how Palestinians, um, as we see uh, described in Western media, um, have to be the perfect victims, have to be um, these kind of, you know, um, uh, yeah, the, just, just the, the, the perception of Palestinians as anything um, but uh, humans deserving of dignity and, um, and capacity for uh, resistance. I mean, I mean, as you all know, I mean, when it comes to us, it's uh, everything is thrown at, at our faces. Um, you know, the memory of Jewish vulnerability and the history of trauma around anti-Semitism becomes, you know, a Palestinian problem all of a sudden. I mean, it's 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 important to remind people that we don't really we're not that invested in the identity of who occupies us. I mean, and, and their history. You know, I mean, it's not our issue. Per se, but I think what for me was so um, outrageous, if you want, about Chad's article, that on the one hand it attempts to actually look at some political or military logic around what happened on the seventh of October, but then dismisses it and forecloses any other possibility except he provides only dark undertones for the readers, only this kind of horror that is going to happen after. Um, this wide-scale, intentional massacre that happened in the Gaza envelope. Um, and, and he lays out this political argument supported by some Palestinian historians. And I think that's my problem. I think resistance is not only, you know, the, in, in any, any text on the philosophy of war, 
you have passions. Passions are part, effects are part of, of, of any war. I mean, nobody can deny that, but these are different effects. There's a complex architecture of effects that feed into why people fight. And to me, resistance has always been more than just a vengeful pathology or a vengeful effect. It's also something around hope, no? And it opens the space and political possibilities that people should think about whenever even a violent action, even if you don't like that violent action or you condemn that violent action morally or whatever, uh, or you're, 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 you're somebody that doesn't like violence more broadly because I think you know most humans don't. But I think in, in many ways we need to look into these political possibilities and take them seriously. And I think this is symptomatic of a different thing that is happening is that Palestinians have always been um, presented specifically their fighters as profane in the West, as an object not to be touched. The Palestinian fighter is somebody to be killed, assassinated, um, to be completely demolished and destroyed. I'm not, no, nobody, nobody who fights thinks that uh, that's not an outcome that is possible uh, for him. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to object to that. But I think for me, for some so-called allies, intellectual allies of the Palestinians, to not take resistance as a Palestinian historical institution, as a body of thought, as a, a social movement, as an, a political ideologies that are different with, a, with the actual social life, with sometimes with a lot of its own problems and own uh, deficiencies and sometimes its own, because it is, it's, it's like anything else. It, it, it needs critique, but it, that critique has to be internal to it and belongs to it and concerned about it. Because I think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is such an important point, and and maybe I I want to tell you what I see and ask you if that is what you're talking about, or ask you at least to react to it. But we see this a lot on you know even among people on the left in the West, whether it's in the United States or Europe, where they will. And of course, there are exceptions to everything. There, there is always, uh, you know, uh, you can find someone with any view. But I'm talking about the broad, big picture, where we will find that even among people on the left who are generally very sympathetic, sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian struggle, there are people who will openly celebrate military resistance in Ukraine or openly celebrate armed groups in Syria, or openly celebrate and romanticize uh, Kurdish armed groups and their female fighters and, you know, their heroes, and they put their pictures out and this sort of thing. But very few people, very few people, if any, dare do that uh, for... Um, uh, Palestinian resistance fighters who are engaging in, in incredible acts of heroism right now in Gaza, as we're seeing in the videos that come out. And we had this whole kind of condemnation Olympics right after October 7th, where everyone had to find just the right way to condemn Hamas, just enough, but not too much, or just the right amount so they could keep their credentials as, uh, you know, uh, whatever it was, the sorts of games that we don't necessarily see in, in other situations. In other words, the Palestinians are always an exception. 
uh, in, in this political ecosystem. Is that what you're talking about in a way? Yeah, of course. I, this is what I'm talking about. I think uh, it, it, what, 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 it, what it does create, and I think this is what, what is actually dangerous about Chats' uh, article, is that it does not do that strategy only through a moral condemnation of what happened. So it's not just saying, look, I'm, yo, yo, guys, I'm against violence. Um, let's find some other way to like solve this situation. It actually attempts to reject the action from a political, military, and strategic point of view, as long with, along with this moral condemnation that comes in. So that's that was when I was reading it. That was my problem with Chats's article, is that he's trying or attempting to foreclose any possibilities. And there's a very strong possibility that actually what happened on seventh October horrific, we condemn or we condone, whatever your position is, is actually something that opens a lot of political possibilities for liberation for the Palestinians, but not only for the Palestinians, also for, for other people. Because I see Palestinian res resistance as a spearhead in a more, less than just a, a, a nationalist, reactionary, you know, just fighting for its own land. It's also a spearhead in a struggle. It's a global struggle. It's a universal struggle. It exposes fascism everywhere. It highlights uh, different layers of class politics. It, it, it's, it's not only something for Palestinians themselves. And to be left out from the conversation on these moral grounds, on, on, on placing Palestinians as profane figures, specifically their fighters. And of course, for Palestinians, our fighters are adored. I mean, if I was speaking to Palestinians right now, I would have to just tell them to not fetishize uh, resistance no like that's the you know we shouldn't fetishize or romanticize it we need to like also deal with it as a real institution and it has its problems and pitfalls and and issues but that profanity that you know um you know is around the palestinian uh, fighter around its resistance it doesn't actually help even in any kind of conversation um, whether it's intellectual or anywhere and that's what was surprising for me in chat's argument is that he builds this nightmare he offers us the nightmare and he doesn't give us the hope he doesn't give us the dream and he's dissecting what happened politically destroying it in terms of its political possibilities and remember this i mean for for us resistance is about opening political possibilities is about opening the space uh for what could be and it always will remain that in the minds and hearts of the palestinian people because it, it it breaks and cracks Israel's stronghold. It, it enables us to see something different. And that's what actually happened. Palestine is now a pressing issue. It's an international regional issue with implications to the region and its development. It's forcing people to talk about Palestine for a long time. We have a solidarity movement that is rising across the globe as a result of what happened on the 7th of October. Uh, resistance has provided us at least with also what's happening in Gaza now. We don't know what's going to go on, but if the Israeli military fails to meet its objective or gets caught in a quagmire with not only a defeat on the 7th of October, but also a defeat that will come on later, these are all concrete and real possibilities. There's a hopeful pathology here for Palestinians and for all those that support Palestine and for all those that support also uh, the end of settler colonialism and you know all forms of uh, inequalities and uh, racism in the world and not only in Palestine. 
and if I, I could just make one, uh, I know I know we want to wrap up, but again, this, these are such important uh, observations and they do have real life consequences because the, these sorts of politics of condemnation and exceptionalizing Palestinians really does foreclose a lot of political possibility and discussion. And and you're you're rightly talking about resistance opening up those possibilities. So, for example, the discussion around October seventh uh, that Israel has sought and many of its allies have sought to push is that this is some incomprehensibly evil singular event similar to nine eleven and cannot be related to uh, anything else. Uh, and so that's why Israel got so upset when even, even Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, who's very, very pro-Israel in everything he has said and done since he took office. But when he said, you know, October 7th, very bad, we condemn it, the worst thing in the world. But it didn't come out of the blue or there was a context for it, which is, you know, an endless occupation. Israel and its supporters went nuts. And of course, Guterres eventually retreated, as he always does. But the point, you know, when when you successfully impose that kind of moralistic uh, view that says this is a unique, uniquely evil event that it is that happened only because Palestinians are bad and we are good, similar to the, the line after 9-11, they hate us for our freedom. They hate us and they want to destroy us because we're so good, not because we're bad, but because we're wonderful people. And the consequence of that is it makes it very difficult, if not possible, to talk about the reality, the reality that for two decades, Hamas had been, or almost two decades, Hamas had been trying to follow a political course, and that every door was slammed in its face. And that includes it entered into the elections in 2006, which we talked about earlier, and won. But when it won, instead of being given an opportunity to, to pursue that political course, wherever it might lead, it was there was a US-backed coup. Mahmoud Abbas and Salam Fayyad were imposed in their place, and Hamas was uh, isolated in Gaza. And the siege was imposed, which created the conditions that, you know, led to where we are now. None of that can be discussed. The fact that Hamas issued a new charter in 2017 that offers a very clear and I would say uh, moderate political vision. I, I, I couldn't agree with it because I don't support a two state solution, whereas Hamas was pushing towards a two state solution. But wherever you come down on that, the point is they had tried to follow a political course and every door was slammed in their face, leading to the situation where there could, there was no alternative for them except to pursue the course of military resistance. And when they did that with such tremendous success against the Israeli army, as John keeps reminding us the response is to invent all these atrocity stories that turned out to be completely fake whether it is the mass rapes 
And in the latest piece of propaganda I saw, the Israeli foreign ministry was distributing a photo that is actually from, I believe, from Syria or Iraq, claiming that it shows a victim of a rape. They, they've produced no evidence for that rapes, rape. Of course, the propaganda about the beheaded babies, which we keep coming back to time and again, and the baby baked in an oven. I mean, it sounds so stupid, but this is the stuff that the Israeli government and its representatives are putting out. And at the same time, ignoring, and I come back to this, and I'm going to see if Tamara can bring it up now, the story we did a few days ago about um, the Israeli helicopter pilots uh, that um, that uh, shot their own people and shot their own civilian cars uh, on October 7th. So the suppression. I've even seen people saying that it's denialism, that there's now such a thing as October 7th denialism. If you yeah, talk I mean about the Israelis themselves who have admitted the Israeli survivors, witnesses, and even some military people who admitted that they fired on civilians. They fired on Israeli civilians. But if we talk about that, we're denialists. So in other words, all of this is to narrow and shrink what we're allowed to talk about to Hamas is bad and evil, and Israel are the poor little victims, and all those Palestinian babies that are being killed, well, sorry, they were just in the way or they were human shields. And so I'm just saying that, that uh, Abud, these observations you're making have consequences. And part of what we need to do is challenge them and, demar and, and refuse to play this game of condemnation. And we, well, and for people to keep saying, and you see this also on the left, uh, among people saying, well, we support Palestine, but Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinians. Well, you know, I, I'm going to break some news to you, but if you go to any Palestinian community, people support the resistance. People support the resistance because they view it as legitimate. And so, again, we have these rhetorical efforts to try to produce a good Palestinian who is dissociated from Hamas. And that doesn't mean you, you, you can't criticize Hamas within a, a proper context and discourse, but there is always this effort to say a good Palestinian is one who dissociates themselves from Hamas or who dissociates themselves from resistance. And I think that that is a naive view because every resistance struggle that has been said. It was. I, I'm old enough to remember the 1980s when they said, "Yes, there are South Africans who oppose apartheid," and but the ANC are terrorists. They don't represent. They don't represent South Africans or the IRA and Sinn Fein. They don't represent uh, people in the north of Ireland. And so the Viet Cong, they don't represent people in, in Vietnam. Well, you know, this is, this is where we are. And, and it's certainly the case that one path to legitimacy is democratic elections, which Palestinians aren't allowed to have. But another path, path is through your actions. And there is no doubt that in the minds of uh, 
a significant section of Palestinians, the resistance has legitimacy through its actions. The fact that they are confronting this genocidal entity that is armed to the teeth by the so-called human rights-loving West, and they are standing alone against them. They are standing alone against them. We didn't hear in, in these past few weeks all those Western think tanks saying, no fly zone or arm the Palestinians or, uh, you know, s- send them, uh, uh, you know, man pad weapons, the, the anti-aircraft weapons. All the things we heard for years and years and years when it came to Syria from think tanks and even leftists, nobody dares to say in the West now. Where are the demands? You don't like that Hamas is using unguided rockets towards Tel Aviv or wherever? Well, let's send them precision guidance systems. Let's send them HIMARS so they can hit the uh, Israeli military targets with uh, precision and accuracy. You don't hear that. And this is about more than just um, you know, morality. There's, there's something else going on here. And I think ultimately it's that the Palestinians are against the empire. They're not with it. And that, that's, in a sense, what exceptionalizes them. Palestinian resistance has always been a resistance against, ultimately against the Western empire that created Israel and continues to support it. And that's why it can never be tolerated. I mean, I agree completely with the last point. In it. And that's why it's also a spearhead um, for everybody else. So it's not only a matter for Palestinians. That's why... Palestinians are in a, in, a, in, a, in a very special place to be fighting for others as well, not only for themselves. And this is what it's important in our discourse as well. That's why you, people should engage with Palestinian resistance, not making it an untouchable subject. And I, I know there's a lot of fear around it because once you talk about it um, or you're outspoken about it, a lot of people lose their careers or they're associated with, you know, these terrific Hamas people, horrific Hamas people, and they're, they're you know, you end a lot of uh, the prospects you might have. And that's why I think it's important to, to be speaking about that because whenever something is a taboo, whenever something is something that shouldn't be talked about and discussed and analyzed and provided specifically the military logic of doing the October 7th attack, and the glaring obvious for me, Ali, which is that if this was an outright massacre, I think that the number of Israelis killed is way too small for 2,000 fighters that entered and had a lot of hours without a lot of military presence to commit an outright massacre. To commit uh, in, in a place that has 200,000 Israelis, much more of a death toll we would have seen if that was the intention, if that was the actual military plan that go in and kill everybody. I mean, this is this is one of the problems of, of even opening uh, 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 this discussion. At, at that moment, everything was closed. There's no talk about the journalists on Twitter celebrating that they killed Hamas fighters once they entered, and they're civilians, yeah? The civilians were fighting Hamas fighters in the settlement. There's no talk about the clashes that happened across, or when Israel retook re- re- the, the Gaza envelope, what happened really. The, the, the picture is complicated, and now it's, you know, I saw in Haaretz 
they're accusing Palestinians because our psychology has not been used for us to be on the moral, you know, wrong. So we cannot take and comprehend that, you know, we've done a lot of, we can do a lot of horrific, you know, outright killings of civilians. That, that's the idea that is being pushed by a lot of like pro-Israeli uh, sentiments. That's why we were denying. I mean, I think one of the other things that is obvious is that Palestinians have to show their dead children on TV for people to believe that there's a massacre. While Israelis get to curate the massacre and respect the dignity of, of the bodies that were killed. I mean, that just tells you something about um, um, the hypocrisy and the double standards here. If what happened happened, just show it and tell the people. Nobody's going to uh, uh, look at it and say, uh, uh, we deny it. Just show exactly what happened. Tell us how many uh, uh, civilians were killed outright, how many died in a clash, how many were killed by your own soldiers, how many fought back. Tell us the whole story. Tell us the whole narrative of what really occurred. In the Gaza envelope, because you used that to create this massacre and genocide in Gaza, and we need to know we need to know the truth around what happened there, uh, in its fullness, and in, in its uh, completeness, including all the times that Hamas fighters and Palestinian fighters did not kill civilians, not only the times that they might have uh, hypothetically killed civilians, for instance. Well, we're going to leave it right there. Um... That is our good friend, Abdel Jawad Omar. He is a lecturer at Birzeit University in the Occupied West Bank and uh, the author of uh, a wonderful and really important uh, essay in Mondo Weiss called Hopeful Pathologies in the War for Palestine, a reply to Adam Schatz. Um, we'll, uh, we'll put a link up to that on the blog post that accompanies this um, hopefully later on today. Uh, and I, uh, before we go, we have a, a bunch of comment. We had a, a, just a wealth of comments uh, over the last two hours. Um, Asa, why don't you uh, showcase some of them for us? Yeah, um, I normally mention all the support we have for uh, our guests, but today I'm going to mention that we had a lot of um, opposition to Tony Blair. <laughs> he was mentioned earlier Blair should be in prison uh, Blair should be in jail in lieu of Julian Assange mm. um, yeah there was a lot of uh, hate for Tony Blair <laughs> um, well we, yeah so uh, and yeah and we we've, well, we also had a lot of support for all, everybody on the panel today um, for uh, Abdul Jawad people particularly uh, appreciated his analysis um and john as well and Ooh, all caps. Uh, yeah <laughs> thank you john <laughs> um and uh people said that ali is on fire today as well um i had uh, an extra cup of coffee this <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was loads there was absolutely loads of comments i can't possibly read them all but thank you everyone yeah, yeah. For Thank you. And I want to make sure that people like and subscribe, not just this current uh, YouTube uh, live stream. It really helps us uh, in the algorithm uh, metrics, as well as uh, go to our website, electronicintifada.net, sign up for our mailing list. You'll get notified of live streams like this, um, as well as uh, a daily roundup of all the news that you will not find on CNN.
uh, or NPR. Um, and uh, also go to our updates link there at the top in the little red box in the middle. It says updates. Click that. You'll get a scrolling log of um, all the uh, pieces that we've published, uh, but also uh, items from uh, Palestinian news sources and international news sources uh, about what's happening on the ground in Palestine. Um, and I just want to thank Tamara Nassar, as ever, uh, for her brilliance behind the scenes um, and all of her work uh, as a reporter and editor here at the Electronic Intifada as well. Um, and our guests, Abdel Jawad Omar and Sadaf Dust of the Center for Constitutional Rights earlier in the show. John, Asa, and Ali, uh, thank you all so much. And we will be back next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Dora. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, guys.